on one hand, the fundamentals behind income-producing real estate, especially especially residential income-producing real estate, is very sound. Not so much office, for sure. Uh, but uh, residential real estate fundamentals are very sound. Uh, there's a shortage of housing in this country. Interest, high interest rates are increasing mortgage payments, which drives up the cost of housing overall. And so therefore, when the cost of all housing rises, an argument could be made that rents would rise too because this rising tide lifts all boats. But what people have to keep in mind is that rents rose, in some cases, 50% in between uh, 2020 and 2022. And all that really did is push any uh, available future rent growth into a compressed period of time a couple years ago. It just pulled it all forward. So rent growth that we should have gotten in 2024 and 2025, we already got in 2020 and 2021. So I wouldn't count on anything happening. Now, there was an article that came out today. We're recording this in early January 2024. Uh, there was an article that came out this morning about annual year-over-year -year rent growth being negative on a national basis uh, for the ninth straight month. And I do believe that uh, that's very representative of what we're seeing in a lot of markets across the country. Now, if you're in the Midwest, the Rust Belt part of the nation, which never really got that 30% annual rent growth, you're going like, what are you guys talking about? You know, we're getting three to 5% rent growth here because they always did. And they didn't get that 30% jump like some of these other markets did. Uh, but those markets that had big jumps across the Sun Belt in the Southern half of the US, it's a day of reckoning to realize that that cannot continue and it likely will not continue. And now you've got negative year over year rent growth to show for it. And I think that it might stay that way for a little while. Hey everyone. Welcome to this week's release of the Real Market Talks podcast. I'm starting off the new year with Brian Burke, who is the president and CEO of Praxis Capital, which specializes in multifamily investing across the United States. In this recording, Brian walked me through his assessment of the current market environment and how it relates to previous experiences. By having national reach, he's been able to see how conditions have evolved in multiple regions and where he is seeing success and potential headwinds. Aside from being an astute observer of trends, Brian also generously shares a story of how he built his company from the ground up and became a successful author. Brian further goes into how investors who are interested in getting into real estate passively can partner with enterprises such as his. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode or the show in general. Feel free to reach out to me at realmarkettalks at gmail.com or leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. You can now also respond directly to the episodes and start a conversation if you listen on Spotify. Thanks again for tuning in. Now let's hear from Brian. All right. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate you taking some of your time out of your schedule to speak with me. Uh, it's great to have you here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. 
Yeah, definitely. So just to get going here, why don't you give your elevator pitch just a quick introduction to who you are and what you've been doing? Yeah, my name is Brian Burke. I'm the president and CEO of Praxis Capital, which is a vertically integrated real estate private equity firm specializing in the multifamily sector across the United States. We make investments in apartment complexes all across the country. Uh, we hold them and or sell them eventually is all obviously the goal. Uh, outside of investing circles, I'm probably best known for my book, The Hands-Off Investor, which is a guide written for passive investors to teach passive investors how to invest in passive real estate offerings where they're contributing capital to a venture where someone such as myself or somebody that does what I do is out there doing the active part of real estate investing. That's great. And uh, what I typically like to do is break up the show into two halves where uh, talk a little bit about the markets, you know, what's going on right now, what you're seeing, how you're doing your, your business day to day, and then also like to get into the story and learn more about you. But I think um, understanding the context about you and your story is, is really important. So I actually kind of want to start out with just a little bit more about your background, how you got started in real estate, and how you've kind of seen things evolve and, and change throughout your career a little bit, if you want to just give an overview from that perspective. Yeah, I started. I made my first real estate investment in 1989, so it's been a 30, 34, almost 34 and a half years now. Uh, I was, you know, fresh out of high school pretty much, and trying to figure out, you know, how to have a go at the entrepreneurial world. And you know, I'd read that uh, most uh, wealth was built on the foundation of real estate investing. I thought, well, that sounds good, right? Because I don't know how to do anything else and I don't know how to do real estate either, but the books all make it sound really easy and say you can invest in real estate even if you don't have any money. And I didn't have any money, so that sounded perfect for me. So I made my first real estate investment with no money out of my own pocket. I actually got a uh, seller to carry back my down payment and then I was uh, making my first real estate investment. I was hooked from there and pretty much never looked back. I spent the early part of my career buying, fixing up, and reselling houses. Uh, most of the houses I bought were on the courthouse steps at foreclosure sales and then uh, improved them and resold them fairly quickly. I've done about 750 of those. And then uh, as my career evolved later on, I did all sorts of stuff. I did commercial development, hotel development, uh, self-storage development, single family subdivisions, built new homes, all this other stuff, but I found that my core competency was in investing in multifamily. It was the thing I was best at, it's what got the highest returns, and ever since I've been primarily focused on uh, buying apartment complexes. I've bought over 4,000 units of multifamily uh, in my career, and um, I've sold about three quarters of that, so uh, I've kind of been all the way around the trip, and now I'm just kind of waiting to do it all over again. That's great. And you've been working all over the place. You've been doing deals. You, you started out somewhat locally and then you expanded out from there. Could you just give a, an overview of, of how that growth has happened and taken place? Yeah, I mean, originally I did exactly as you said. I bought everything right here in my own backyard in the county I live in in Northern California. And then uh, as that market started to get frothy, I figured I had to look somewhere else. So I started expanding out to other counties that were a little further out and making investments there. And then as all of California got really frothy and all the real estate market in general became frothy, I figured I have to figure out like, how can I still invest in real estate even when I think that real estate is destined for some kind of a reset? And this was about 2004 or 5 
when I made that decision. I, I basically stopped buying almost all real estate uh, in about 04 and then went to look. Uh, I found this property in Buffalo, New York. So all the way across the country, I bought my first out-of-state asset. And the reason I chose that market is that market never really went up. So I figured it would probably not go down. And so while the market was collapsing all over the country, interestingly enough, the real estate that I owned in, in uh, Buffalo was actually doing just fine. Uh, and then I realized, you know, real estate is a very portable investment. You can't pick up a house and move it to another state, but you can pick up your money and go invest that in other states. And ever since then, we've been seeking out markets across the country that I think have the best potential and in investing in those markets. That, that's a great overview. Um, that was a good example about Buffalo. Can you expand on that a little bit with some of the things that you were kind of picking up on or some indicators that you were honing in on that told you that you might need to start bracing for something or, or preparing your strategy to account for unexpected events that were in, in the in, potentially in the near future? Yeah, so this was, remember, this was like 2004, 2005 when I started recognizing all this stuff. And what I was seeing was that a lot of the houses that were being bought in the market during that time were being bought with financing where the buyer was basically putting nothing down, uh, had adjustable interest rate that was going to reset in a year or two. And by the way, the payment they were making wasn't even enough to cover all the interest. Some of the interest was being tacked onto the end of the loan as additional principal, resulting in a negative amortization. And just scratching my head, wondering like, how is this? How is this going to play out in a good way? Right? There's not really a case for this playing out very well. On top of that, you had everybody, and I mean almost everybody, was a real estate investor. You know, you'd go to real estate investor club meetings, and people who had zero experience were like, "I'm going to go buy a rental house, and I got to find something quick, you know, because the market is great." And you know, I'm looking at it, going like, "Why? You know, the, the houses are five hundred thousand dollars; they rent for fifteen hundred bucks a month. The math doesn't work. What are you thinking?" But when when you get this euphoria surrounding the market, you realize that probably not the best time to be a buyer. So that's when I pretty much scaled back and started figuring I had to look elsewhere or really shift up my strategy if I was going to be able to ride this out. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. Um, what kinds of qualities are you typically looking for when you're when you're looking into a market um, as indicators that, it's, you know, you mentioned Buffalo and some of the things that you, you thought had potential there were reasons that would, um, you know, lead to success in that market. But what are some of the things that you've looked, th looked for throughout your career that give you some confidence in the places that you're going to be investing in? Well, the, the answer I'm going to give is going to make you scratch your head and wonder why I picked Buffalo because it doesn't qualify under the metrics that I really look at. But, you know, at that time, my criteria was I want a market where it's really sleepy, someplace where nothing really happens because California prices have run up 60, 70 percent in a very short period of time. That means they can come crashing down. I want to find a market where prices move three to five percent a year because I was really more looking at downside protection than trying to look really at upside, uh, which sounds kind of strange, but you know that's kind of the way I operate. So the real metrics that I look at when I choose a new market 
as I want to see income growth, job growth, and population growth. Now, remember again, Buffalo had none of those, and that was chosen for a completely different reason. But in general, in, in a normal market environment, I'm looking for markets that have those three things, and those three things need to be built on a foundation of economic diversification. So that's, that's led me to markets such as Phoenix, Arizona, Dallas, Texas, Houston, uh, Tampa and Orlando, Florida, uh, Huntsville, Alabama, you know, areas where you have where people are moving to uh, and they have job growth and income growth, but yet they also have a number of different industries. So it's not like Midland or Odessa, Texas, where maybe you have job growth and income growth and population growth, but there's one industry. And when that industry suffers, then the whole area suffers. Right. And it wasn't looking for that. Uh, and so that's led me to a number of markets, mostly in the southeastern part of the part of the U.S. And consequently, those three big factors are what drives uh, income streams from income real estate, and income from income real estate is what drives real estate values in income real estate. So it's extraordinarily important that you find markets where you have all three of those things. Yeah, we always say this kind of a, a similar thing. We're always looking for an ecosystem to provide that resilience. Uh, so you have a number of factors that are leading to the stabilization of that market and hopefully the continued stabilization through whatever headwinds might arise. That, that was a pretty much it. And you know there were a lot of headwinds in 06, 07, 08. And uh, you know, that led to a lot of opportunity. Uh, interestingly, over the last you know, four or five or six years, the headwinds have been more in difficulty finding assets to acquire uh, amongst all the competition. But, you know, it's funny how, th how what comes around goes around. And I, I don't think it's going to be too much longer where we're going to have, uh, you know, more opportunity to choose from and more reasons to actually want some of that opportunity. Right now, there's really no reason. Yeah. So over that period of time where you were investing and you were growing, you were pivoting, it sounds like, to different product types and investment strategies. Can you expand on that a little bit more and, and talk about, you know, that that growth pattern from, you know, starting from the, the residential? Sounds like you uh, found that multifamily residential was a place that you felt really confidently and strongly with, but it sounds like you also explored some other areas too. Can you talk about those and, and why you decided to, to try those avenues as well? Yeah, you know, if you're if you're in a canoe uh, and you're in a stream that's meandering through a meadow, a stream in a meadow tends to, you know, go left and right and bend and curve. And if, if all you can do is row in one direction, 100% chance you're going to run aground. So as a real estate investor, if you only can do one thing one way, eventually that's not going to work. So you have to be flexible. You have to be nimble. You have to be able to understand different sectors of real estate, understand the economy economics of the whole thing so that you can change your location or change your strategy uh, so that when the market changes, you can change with it. And that's kind of how we did it. You know, in uh, 2009 and 10, there was tons and tons of foreclosures. We were buying them left and right, sometimes two or three houses a day and fixing them up and reselling them. That was great. It was very capital intensive, especially, you know, when you got 50 houses in various phases of rehab and they're in California where a house is, you know, a few hundred grand, not a few thousand. Uh, you know, that's a lot of money. So we had to raise a lot of money from investors to, you know, feed that business. And when you build this huge base of loyal investors who uh, love and working with you, 
uh, and you're in this one strategy that we knew at the time was maybe going to last three or four years and then it was going to run out and you weren't going to have any foreclosures to buy and look here we are um, then what are you going to do next and you know where are you going to deploy these people's capital and so Multifamily was uh, an asset class I had uh, some history in. I've been in multifamily since 2002, and you know that was the next logical place for us to pivot because multifamily was scalable, it was sustainable, it was something that we could grow uh, our investor base, our asset base at the same time, and um, you know, pr- and, and kind of bring that more of a nationwide footprint. Uh, as opposed to just waiting for the foreclosures to run out and then wondering what we're going to do next. What did the learning curve look like on that when you were starting out? Was it smaller multifamily that you were experimenting with and then you scaled up or did you just go right into it with some some pretty larger scale deals? No, I believe in organic growth. You know, if you want to get up on the roof, there's two ways to get there. One is to jump on the roof and the other is to climb a ladder. And I feel like if you try to jump, you might slip and fall and break your leg. And I would rather climb the ladder one rung at a time. So, you know, first I was buying duplexes and then uh, my first real multifamily building was a 16 unit my next one was an 11 unit. My next one was a 60 unit and then a 54 unit and then 136 and then, you know, 276, you know, and then, you know, 539. So it's like I've, I've just over time bought larger and larger as we got better and better at doing what we do. And were those types of deals value add oriented? It sounded like you were doing a lot of flips and that was kind of your approach uh, up until then, or were you looking for uh, properties that were already kind of stabilized and you were looking to make it just a long-term investment in that, in the appreciation of that over time? I've always believed in real estate that the best results are achieved in properties where you can make some kind of a difference. Whether that's a physical improvement or a management improvement, there has to be something that we can actually do to amplify the results. What we don't want to do is buy a perfectly performing property at the peak of its performance and hope and pray that the market gives us a gift. Instead, I'd rather have something where the management isn't paying attention, their eyes off the ball, the units are a little bit substandard. It doesn't mean that it has to be a class D property. You know, right now our our primary property class is a um, is class A. You know, we're we're mostly in class A and B properties. B plus, A, A minus, where you don't think of that as being something where there's physical impairments. But there are, you know, a a 15-year-old class A multifamily property is a 15-year-old apartment. And I know in the 20 years I lived in my house, I renovated it twice. So they're due for something, right? An original interior from 15 years ago is dated now, and you're going to get better rents if you can upgrade that and and have something better to offer those investors. Yeah, no, that sounds like a a very prudent method uh, for approaching the, the investing. So we kind of did a little bit of a roundabout here. I think the the was definitely worth jumping into more of your background a little bit before we talk about what's been going on now. Um, but I don't think um, it would be a surprise to mention anybody that the past couple of years have been unpredictable, challenging, and just a little uncertain. Um, so can you just talk about what your approach has been and your outlook, maybe a little bit before the pandemic, what that felt like during the pandemic, what you guys were doing and now coming out on the other side? 
um, how you're looking at things, like what you're seeing and how you're trying to, uh, to approach this market. Yeah, so right before the pandemic, we were in uh, portfolio building mode. We were still acquiring. In fact, we were acquiring quite a bit. Uh, we were renovating units, and then uh, then the pandemic came along, and we thought, uh-oh, you know, this is going to be a problem. But instead, it really wasn't a problem at all. It was interesting how it played out. Rent growth started to take off because the markets that we were invested in happened to also be the markets where people started flooding to after uh, they started doing all this work from home. And it's like, well, I don't have to live in San Francisco, and I can live in Phoenix, or I can live in... Um, Atlanta, I don't have to live in New York, or I could live in Tampa, I don't have to live in New York, you know. So we were, we were the benefactor of a lot of population movement. Coincidentally, there was also wage growth and income growth taking place at the same time. So we started to see rents skyrocketing. Uh, so we, we, were, we were acquiring properties until about 2021, uh, about 2020, really. And then come 2021, we were really starting to look at the market and realize that we felt like there was a topping out that was at play. And it felt like uh, it was it was time to start seeing what the market would do if we got out. <laughs> and so we spent 2021 and the first half of 2022 selling three quarters of our portfolio. And we had 4,000 units. We sold about 3,000 units. Uh, we still have about 1,000 units of class A, multi-left in really solid, strong markets uh, that were that we had acquired in, I think it was 21-ish, 20 or 21. Uh, but outside of that, we pretty much sold pretty much sold everything right at the top of the market. So I think we, I don't think we could have timed it much better. Yeah, definitely. So you were making the decision to to sell, and you were saying you felt like you, you were at the um, the top of the market in some of these regions and um, assets that you were you were holding. What kinds of things were you observing in your competition? Did you feel like other people were saying, or not competition, I should say, but in other in investors or other peers that you you know you knew were they kind of looking at things the same way that you are, starting to scratch your heads a little bit, or did you feel like? they were still feeling like, you know, going full steam ahead uh, felt right. Yeah, no, they were thinking the opposite of us, which is why we decided to make that move. Uh, you know, the what we started to observe was, you know, your, your question was a good question the way you originally phrased it. You know, what was our competition doing? Because in, in the world of acquisitions, when you're putting in offers on property you might want to buy, your competition is the other buyers that are out there making offers on the same asset. And what we were finding was we were getting outbid on stuff by millions of dollars. And in cases where the other buyers were willing to put up seven-figure non-refundable deposits, like before they even see the property, before they step foot on the asset, their money is non-refundable, over a, over a million dollars non-refundable money. And we started seeing that happening more and more and more. And that gave me flashbacks to 2005 when everybody had to be a real estate investor and get in on something because they didn't want to miss out. And there was too much unjustified euphoria in the market. And that was a signal to us that it was time to get out because everybody else was getting signals that it was time to get in. And, and to me, the best time to be a seller is when everyone wants to be a buyer. It's a really bad time to be a seller when everybody wants to be a seller and nobody wants to be a buyer, which is exactly what's happening right now. Nobody wants to be a buyer. I haven't bought anything in over two years. 
uh, for that very reason. And I don't expect that we'll be buying anything for, I don't know, maybe another six months, maybe another year, maybe two more years. Who knows? It all just depends on what the market does. But when, uh, when everybody wants to sell, that'll be a good time for me to be a buyer again. Yeah, totally. And one of the things that you mentioned earlier, your approach to identifying a healthy market that you're confident in is sort of a, a diversity to that, um, where there's a lot of uses and there's, there's factors that you feel like um, are, are giving you confidence in the longevity of it being a healthy market. One of the things that I've recently been observing in you know assets that I've been looking at is some have been trying to convince me that there's uh, more room for rent growth in some of these markets. And when I really dive in and try and do my own research, um, I'm skeptical that that kind of rent growth is, is possible, just given what I would expect a healthy um, market to be able to provide for rents in terms of rent to other living expenses when I look at what the, the de demographic base looks like there. Is that something that you were looking at too in, in some of these cases saying, um, you know, we're not confident that these, these rents are going to continue to, you know, move these assets where, where we're hoping they'll go based on this investment criteria? Or did you feel like there was still more runway for rents in, in some of these markets? Well, when we made the decision to sell, uh, you know, this was a time when we were getting outbid by millions of dollars on assets we were trying to buy. We were looking at the rent growth, and the rent growth at that time was 20-ish percent in some markets. Phoenix was as close to 30 percent annual rent growth, which we knew at the time was absolutely unsustainable. And, and that was another reason why we decided to sell. I mean, when rent growth is extraordinarily high and you know it's about to stop, it has to. It can't keep doing that. Uh, it's a good time to sell before everybody else realizes that it stopped. Because some people don't realize it stops until after it stopped. We realize that it's going to have to stop, so it's a good time to sell. Uh, there's, the, while, you know, it's an interesting question you pose because on one hand, the fundamental, the fundamentals behind income-producing real estate, especially, especially residential income producing real estate is very sound, not so much office for sure, uh, but uh, residential real estate fundamentals are very sound. Uh, there's a shortage of housing in this country. Interest, high interest rates are increasing mortgage payments, which drives up the cost of housing overall. And so therefore, when the cost of all housing rises, an argument could be made that rents would rise too because this rising tide lifts all boats. But what people have to keep in mind is that rents rose, in some cases, 50% between 2020 and 2022. And all that really did is push any available future rent growth into a compressed period of time a couple years ago. It just pulled it all forward. So rent growth that we should have gotten in 2024 and 2025, we already got in 2020 and 2021. So I wouldn't count on anything happening. Now, there was an article that came out today. We're recording this in early January 2024. Uh, there was an article that came out this morning about annual year-over-year -year rent growth being negative on a national basis. 
uh, for the ninth straight month. And I do believe that uh, that's very representative of what we're seeing in a lot of markets across the country. Now, if you're in the Midwest, the Rust Belt part of the nation, which never really got that 30% annual rent growth, you're going like, what are you guys talking about? You know, we're getting three to 5% rent growth here because they always did. And they didn't get that 30% jump like some of these other markets did. Uh, but those markets that had big jumps across the Sun Belt in the southern half of the U.S., it's a day of reckoning to realize that that cannot continue and it likely will not continue. And now you've got negative year over year rank growth to show for it. And I think that it might stay that way for a little while. Yeah, totally. Uh, that's a, a great observation. So you mentioned that you got into hospitality a little bit. Can you can you just maybe t just uh, step aside to that for a second and e expand on that? Because that's an interesting area of, of real estate. And I feel like it's its own special little niche. But I'm just curious to hear what your experience was like with that and, and when you were doing it and kind of why you, you jumped in. Yeah, very niche -y, And it requires a very unique skill set, I think. And uh, uh, I got in because I didn't know any better. And uh, I, I found this opportunity for a, a closed down lakefront resort that needed to be renovated and was begging for a buyer and what I thought an extraordinarily cheap price. So I thought, well, I could pick this thing up, fix it up, open it up and have a hotel. And I mean, I learned how to buy those little shampoo bottles and mattresses and linens. And I mean, I was in this project, man. I was, this was like, this was my life for a couple of years in like, I think it was like 06, 07, which was probably a good time to be that entrenched in something because there was really nothing else to do. The real estate market was falling like a tank. Uh, but it was a horrible experience for me because, number one, uh, those don't always do as well as you think they're going to do. It's very difficult to start something up from zero and, and bring it up. And, and we did. I mean, we got the place full and ultimately sold it. Uh, but it was just such a painful process to get there. And I would never do it again, at least not that way. Uh, so it's, you know, real estate has a lot of different ways to approach it. And a lot of different things you can do, and you just got to find something you like doing. I, I didn't know what I liked and what I didn't like, so I tried a little bit of everything, and now I kind of know. Yeah, the other thing that's really interesting about hospitality, too, and hotels is the seasonality and pricing component of it that fluctuates a lot. Also, just given events and things that are happening like that, it's like a whole different arena for analyzing how, a, how to price your property. And it's so different from even, um, you know, a long-term rental in a typical residential sense, but also the short-term rentals that are a little, a little bit more static. I mean, there can be some fluctuations depending on, again, seasonality and events, but with the hotels, it changes so much more dynamically and it's its own ball game. It's, it's so interesting. Yeah. And you got payroll, you got a, a bunch of, you got a lot of employees of, a, a, you know, different skill sets that you have to deal with. And, personalities and seasonality and the short-term nature of the bookings and it was a it was a really interesting learning experience i mean even down to like learning how to get the reservation management software and how you connect those up to uh the systems on the internet where you can you know get listed on like you know all the travel websites and travel agents and all that kind of stuff and i had to learn all of that stuff because i didn't hire a management company to do this for me I did the whole thing myself and it was, again, it was a really interesting uh, learning experience. I think I'll chalk it off to that and, and just leave it there as a learning experience and something that I have no energy to uh, do over again. 
Yeah, it's uh, really um, overwhelming to think about all the pieces of that. Although, in, in some senses, I guess there's also always the opportunity to partner from the real estate side with an operator, which is something that um, I've had a little bit of experience in. And I guess is another approach that somebody could take if they were interested in, in hospitality from a, a real estate perspective, but not necessarily getting uh, their hands too much in the weeds with the day-to-day -day operations. Yeah, I think it'd be much easier to like buy a flagged hotel uh, and that and improve it like a value do a light value add and and do it that way than to do it the way I did I did it the hard way uh, I literally invented the whole wheel uh, rather than plugging myself into a wheel yeah and it sounds like you really like digging into uh, from a, a learning perspective and um, really like getting into the details of a lot of things that you do and I, I know you had mentioned um, on some some other engagements speaking engagements that you've had that you've you know were doing coding when you were getting into real estate and you were setting up programs and things that were going to help you um, sort of set up your process for engaging with real estate and then uh, buying and analyzing. And do you want to talk about that a little bit too? That was really interesting. Yeah, I wrote my own software because I really didn't have much choice. You know, early on when I got started, there wasn't a lot of software for real estate investors. And, and there, you know, there's probably more now at varying levels of usefulness, but uh, I didn't have what I needed to organize our business and you know, no such thing exists. I figure, well, what better way to have what I need than to create what I need because I know what I need. So I learned how to do that and created my own software to learn how to, to track and manage all the say all the purchases we were making at foreclosure auction. I had no idea how uh, important that step was until about 10 years later when foreclosures went through the roof. I mean, when I wrote that software, we were tracking maybe 30 or 40 foreclosure sales a month. And then, uh, you know, in the thick of it, we were tracking uh, three to 400 a day. And the software kept up great. We never could have done it without it. And, uh, and so that was extraordinarily valuable. And then on the multi side, you know, I, had to, I created my own modeling for, analyzing streams of income and it analyzes it the way we analyze. So rather than trying to flex our way of thinking and our workflow around the way software was designed, we inst I instead designed software that works around the way we approach multifamily and the way we evaluate multifamily and the way that we look at the numbers so that it can work for us rather than us working for it. And that's been extraordinarily valuable. I think it gives us a tremendous competitive edge. Yeah, definitely. I know that those those operational, those anal those efficiencies and analyzing can just give you so much of an advantage when you're approaching things at scale. So that was really interesting um, and incredible that you were able to, to, to do all that and figure out how to do that and apply it. So commend you on that for sure. Yeah, I can't. I can't believe I pulled that off somehow. It's. Uh, I look back on it and think of the thousands of hours I spent on that, and uh, you know now it's all worth it. At the time, you're thinking like, you know, gosh, this is like daunting. But uh, you know now, uh, it saves me so much more time than I ever spent writing it, and uh, it was worth you know getting some education on how to do it. It's uh, the information was out there. I just had to go get it. Yeah. So how are you strategizing now for the next couple of years? You've obviously had to pivot. It sounds like you've been selling. Um, how are you analyzing the future and what kind of game plans are you, are you setting yourself up for? Well, 
I mean, ideally, we'd like to get back in the market and build our portfolio back up. Uh, you know, we didn't sell three quarters of our portfolio because we didn't like real estate. We did it because we didn't like what the market was going to give and the market's giving us what we thought it would. <laughs> and ultimately, that's going to lead to some really good opportunities. And we would like to take advantage of those opportunities. And you know, I'm still young enough to do this one more round and uh, get another up cycle uh, before I... Uh, decided to finish this off. So, uh, but my approach is I'm just waiting and watching. You know, I'm, I'm watching the game from the grandstands. You know, once I see uh, which team is winning, then uh, maybe I'll jump on board. But right now it's kind of a tie game. And uh, actually, maybe it's even buyers are losing. So rather than, you know, being one of those uh, on the losing team, I would rather just wait it out until we got the upper hand. And then, then I'll jump off the bench and uh, we'll start buying again. Are you feeling like multifamily is something that you still want to find a fit for and that's still a, a strength that you want to exercise on? Or are you looking at other opportunities and, and other product types as well? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I'm really going to stray too, uh, off the, too far off the tracks. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not going to go run out and go buy a bunch of office complexes. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe there, maybe that would be a smart thing to do when it reaches the bottom. I mean, it's almost capitulating right now. But um, right now, I'm buying real estate debt, so that's uh, that's one thing I am doing, and I'm doing that because it's not that real estate debt is super sexy or super high returns, but it's much lower risk than buying the asset itself. And really, what I'm doing now is is looking to protect mine and my investors downside more than I'm looking to maximize the upside. There will be a day for that. That day will come where we'll be looking more at the upside. Uh, but right now it's, it's more about the downside. So we're buying real estate debt. And uh, then we'll jump back into multifamily, I suspect. Maybe there'll be some single family home flips mixed in with the middle of it because foreclosures come back. That could happen. We're prepared for it if it does, even though it's not really the largest part of our business. We still know how to do it. We still have a team for it and we could do that. Uh, but uh, I don't really know that I'm going to stray too far off the tracks and start doing industrial and uh, hospitality and office and retail and all that other medical office and everything else. I, I don't see myself going there. That could change, but I don't see myself going there from where I sit today. Yeah, I'm even seeing articles now that are saying that the uh, the industrial is, is slowing down. It and is. those markets are, are having some difficulty now just because I, I feel like the the lifestyle trends just keep changing so dramatically. Uh, every time I heard new normal, like during the pandemic, I kind of cringed a little bit because I was like, are we sure this is the new normal? Like this is a very sudden large scale change in behavior um, in a very short amount of time. Yeah, they and said masks were out, gonna be the new normal, right? And now yeah. nobody nobody does that, you know? It's like, no, yeah, but you're yeah. right, you're right. And now the industrial side, uh, I'm hearing that, you know, people are, you know, maybe buying a little bit less online and they're kind of, there's some normalcy, normalcy in quotes, uh, returning to their lives in some senses. And all that industrial infrastructure is maybe, um, you know, slowing down now. So that was kind of like the next hot thing after uh, uh, multifamily, but it seems like even that's slowing down now. So it's so hard to say. Um, the office thing has really been the biggest curveball for me. I never could have imagined that there would be such a monumental shift in overall human behavior for such uh, an extended period now and where that's going. I'm not really sure. I don't know that anybody knows. Um, but is that something you're still keeping an eye on too? I mean, these things, you know, these potential issues with the banks is something that um, I'm definitely a little wary of. 
Yeah, I mean, what's that? I'm, I'm not so much tracking it closely because I think I'm going to go want to buy a bunch of it, but I am watching it closely because I wonder what that's going to do to some of the lenders and the capital out there and how that mm-hmm. might scare uh, investors away from real estate, how it might scare lenders away from real estate. Uh, you know, these, these wounds cut deep and they heal slow. And so, you know, gosh, I remember it was probably around 2015, still hearing bankers who were still sore about the licks they took in 08 and 09. You know, five or six years later, it's still like, oh, you know, we're still scared. You know, so, uh, you know, this could cause, you know, some longer term effects down the line. You know, fortunately, Malti, our primary source of financing comes from the GSEs, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They're not they're not exposed to office so that you know they're not going to have those kinds of wounds i think they're more reliable as a source of debt but mm-hmm. banks are a source of debt for some buyers and you know that if if those buyers can't get financing especially construction financing then they can't build more units and then that means that there's fewer apartment units to choose from which is going to drive rent growth again because of scarcity so uh, yeah, I am watching it because everything kind of interplays with one another, but I'm not looking at what's going on in office as like the next best opportunity. Well, you're not, not right now anyway. Yeah. Is there anything that's been particularly surprising to you over the past couple of years where you saw something happen and you, you thought, well, that's not where I saw that going or, you know, just a, a trend that you noticed that you were kind of scratching your head about? I think the only one really is interest rates. You know, we, of course, when rates were as low as they were, nobody in their right mind thought they were going to stay at near zero forever. But to go from a SOFR index of 0.05 to 5.3 in like a year, like a 1000x movement in interest rate in one year, that's one that I don't think anybody predicted, myself included. I, you know, even if I thought interest rates were going to go up, I would not have expected they would go up that far that fast. Yeah, that was absolutely wild. Um, Yes, it was. I mean, even if you had anticipated some inflationary aspects coming out of the pandemic, that kind of a response uh, and that aggressively, I I don't think anybody could have been completely prepared for that. And I don't think it was necessary either. I, I, I think some increase of interest rates very likely warranted, but to bring them as high as they went, as fast as they did, in my view, is a mistake. And that's what's causing a lot of the malaise that you see out there. It's partly responsible for the, you know, what will turn out to be a lot of losses, loan losses in the um, uh, office space, and maybe even some loan losses on the multifamily side. Eventually, it'll also create some opportunity for us too. So, you know, we kind of live and die by the same sword, but uh, I, I don't think that they needed to do uh, what they did to ultimately achieve the outcome that we're going to hopefully get. Yeah, agreed. So you've, despite all these crazy market cycles, uh, have had a very successful career, um, and you guys have done a lot of really great work. Um, what, looking back now, what have been some really transformative moments in your career that really have gotten you excited. And when you look back, um, you notice that they were moments that really had um, either a turning point or something that really got you excited about continuing on into the future. Whenever things go wrong is always usually a really good turning point for me. Like, you know, 06, 07, 08 was a very impactful uh, time. And 
it created all sorts of challenges in the real estate world. And being in real estate, of course, we all feel it. Uh, it was. It's interesting how you learn a thousand times more from things that go wrong than you ever learn from anything that goes right. So it was a transformative moment because I learned a lot and I had to figure out, do I crawl into a hole and disappear or do I grow my way out of this? Uh, and I picked the second choice. And what was interesting was I never imagined I would grow to what we've grown into uh, from that small seed that was planted at that time. And I would not be where I am today had that sequence of events not happened. So these moments where you think like the world's coming to an end can be the best time to actually uh, use that as a springboard for some incredible success. And that's exactly what that was. Yeah, that's um, a great way to look at it. Um, are there any particular success stories that you had from some of those difficult times that you'd, you'd want to share? Well, the biggest one was when uh, we were kind of at the lowest of low was in 08. You know, there was massive foreclosures everywhere. Real estate values had fallen 75% in some markets. Uh, I, I can show you price histories on some properties that we bought. Uh, that uh, went down 70, that we bought for 75% less than they sold for, uh, you know, just a short time prior to that. Uh, so that, that was, um, that was a, a very, very interesting uh, time to be sure. So there, there, was a, there was a lot of chaos out there in the market and chaos bred incredible opportunity. And it's, uh, that's, that's, what, that's what sprung, sprung our business was, looking at the foreclosures that were out there and thinking like, I need to figure out how am I gonna buy all of these things, right? Cause it's like drinking from a fire hose. I can't do this by myself. So I sought out uh, a partner that I just happened to meet at the foreclosure sale who was a production home builder. And I knew that the biggest challenge for me was gonna be one, capital. And the second biggest challenge was gonna be a crew that could fix up all these houses. And so when I met them at the foreclosure sale, I said, you know, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, well, we're trying to figure out how to buy these houses, but it's really difficult to figure out. I'm like, well, I have that figured out. I'm trying to figure out how to re remodel like a whole bunch of houses. And they're like, well, we have that figured out. I'm like, well, why don't we work together? You guys do all the construction, you know, because they'd built like 6,000 homes. I'm like, you guys do that. I'll, I'll buy the houses and together, you know, we'll, we'll make something here. And we, so we made it an agreement. We said, all right, over the next six months, let's do six houses together and see how it works out. And if that works out, then we'll do more. Well, in that six month period, instead of doing six houses, we did 60. <laughs> oh, wow. And the rest was history. Uh, it just absolutely took off. And that was really the catalyst for this whole business to really spring into the growth model that we were able to do over the subsequent 10 years and growing our investor base. Had that not happened and that little partnership not come together, uh, then all the rest of those things might not have happened. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I guess serendipitous that you guys are able to find each other. I mean, what's the process been like after that finding investors? Were you, you know, did you, once you had a track record that started to, to just attract more that were hearing about you or were you actively going out and trying to, you know, find new people to partner with? 
it, it really was more about people being attracted to us. It's I've never been really good at marketing, so I'm not like the person that's out there on Instagram. Well, there wasn't really even Instagram wasn't a thing when, when we really got this going. But, you know, I'm not like out on the social media and promoting and I don't have any billboards at the side of the freeway. I mean, there's, there's none of that kind of stuff. Uh, it really was about, uh, you know, just showing people what we've done. And, and um, I think one of the biggest impacts uh, was one time I had uh, a, uh, two guys named uh, Josh Dorkin and Brandon Turner. Josh was the founder of a website called biggerpockets.com and Brandon Turner was his community manager. And they called me up one day and they said, hey, we're going to do this podcast. Would you be a guest on it? And I'm like, what's a podcast? <laughs> and they're like, well, you know, we record a show and people listen to it on the internet. I'm like, whatever, I'll do it, sure. Uh, I, what I didn't know is that that podcast was going to become the number one real estate podcast in the country. Uh, now it gets like a quarter million downloads an episode or something like that. And I was on their third episode, episode number three. And, and literally for years beyond that, this is probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. But for years after recording that episode, I was getting calls from people going like, hey, I heard you on this podcast and what you're doing and I want to invest with you and this and that. And then that kind of fed on itself. And then our performance, you know, people saw what we could do because we we were adding money to their bank accounts. And, uh, you know, so they would tell friends and the friends would tell friends and the, the, the whole company just went into kind of growing on its own without us having to push anything. And people ask me all the time, like, well, how do you find your investors? And I'm like, I don't. They find me and, and I don't have to go find them. <laughs> and that's really how it's that's been. Incredible. Yeah, no, uh, I think uh, most people are probably familiar with that podcast at this point now. Um, and, and after I found your name, I actually, that's where I went back and listened to some of your early episodes. And I, I couldn't believe it when I went back and I saw that you were guests like two or three. And uh, I was like, oh my gosh, this this guy's like one of the MVPs. He's one of the all-stars here. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't believe it. I've been on that thing like four times. And and uh, yeah, I'll never forget. I, I, I had never even heard of a podcast when they asked me to do this thing. And, um, you know, their first show hadn't even released yet uh, when they asked me to be on it. So I didn't know what to expect and I'd never done one. I've, geez, I've been on hundreds since then. But uh, it, it's interesting how when, when your story gets out there and people see like, oh, I see what this guy is doing and seems to know what he's talking about, people gravitate towards that. And then, you know, a number of years later, uh, I, I decided to write the book, The Hands-Off Investor, which is a book that shows investors how to invest in passive real estate offerings because most people don't know. You know, they don't know what they don't know. They don't know what questions to ask. So I started writing this book and when I was about maybe a third of the way to halfway done with it, I, I pitched it to Bigger Pockets. They have a publishing uh, division and I said, hey, uh, you know, would you be interested in publishing this book? Of course, they know me. I've been on the podcast a couple of times and I was a prolific poster on the forums that they uh, their question and answer forums online. And uh, so they said, well, you know, we get like a couple hundred submissions a day of, you know, book ideas and we'd pick like four books a year. But, you know, send it over. So I sent it over and by God, they published it. And, you know, so now people sometimes read the book and then they're like, you know, geez, I read this book and I, you know, this is hard. They're like, you know, I, I don't want to have to ask all these questions and do all this math and figure all this out. Why don't I just invest with you? You wrote the book, you know what you're doing. And, and it, it wasn't the intent of why we wrote the book, but it's just interesting how 
people's brains work that way, right? Instead of like having to figure out how to do it on their own, they read about it, they understand it, but they're like, oh, they don't want to do it. So they're like, well, I'll just go call Brian and you know, and I know I'm good, right? So it's been interesting how that's kind of helped us, the business feed on itself too. Yeah, it's funny the title because you're, from what it sounds like, a very much hands-on investor. Um, so I, I guess if somebody's reading the book and they want to invest with you, that's another opportunity to be more uh, hands-off and a little bit more passive. Yeah, you know, it was funny because when I was started writing this book, at first I even questioned myself, like, am I the right person to write this book? You know, because I'm the, I'm the one in the trenches, right? I'm the active participant. Shouldn't somebody who's out there investing, you know, their whole career is, is investing in passive syndication, shouldn't that be the person to write this book? But the more I thought about it, the more I realized I was the exact right person to write it. Because what, what a passive investor needs to know is what the active participant knows. They need to know where the skeletons are hidden in the closet, uh, where those bodies are buried, what, what kind of tricks sponsors can play to make things look better than they are and that sort of stuff. I know where all the skeletons are hidden. So if I can put those in the book, then that will help more people than someone that has been, you know, maybe even successfully, but somewhat blindly uh, investing passively, but doesn't really know what happens once their money gets inside the black box. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, that's that's incredible. That sounds like um, also such a, a fun group of guys to meet. Um, I've listened to some of their episodes too and uh, on their podcast, and they just seem like really fun down to earth guys to, to get to know. Yeah, and they've become lifelong friends. That's awesome. Um, so we're coming up on an hour here. Um, that's, you know, I, I feel like we just like jam-packed so much information into a, a fairly short session here. But um, I thank you again so much for coming on and, and sharing all your experience. Um, I, I think, you know, hearing your enthusiasm for the way that you describe the, the work that you do speaks for itself. But you know, I always like to ask what's what's really getting you excited about real estate now and what's keeping you in it like through all these these unpredictable times? Well, that's that's a tough question because I'm not really in it. I mean, I guess I am. I own a thousand units of, you know, of, of residential property. So I guess that's a lot more than a lot of people would ever imagine even getting to. But, you know, I look at it as like almost an exit. Uh, you know, I, I nothing really gets me excited about it right now. Um, I'm a little bit pessimistic. Some say I'm overly pessimistic. Some people probably don't want to have me on their podcasts because they're like, you know, I'm trying to raise money and you're out bagging on real estate. You're not helping me out. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I feel very strongly about protecting the interests of the investors and just telling it like it is. And there's times to be both feet in and there's times to just stand on the sidelines and watch. Uh, and so right now, nothing is really getting me all that excited, uh, but I don't need excitement. I've had 34 years of excitement. Um, it feels really good to not be running 100 miles an hour with my hair on fire 24-7. Uh, I feel like I really only have a half a job right now instead of five jobs. And that's a really nice place to be, to rebuild my energy, to get ready to do uh, another round. So I guess what gets me excited for the future is knowing that times like this always breed opportunity. And if I can be there at the right time to sweep up the glass after the traffic collision, uh, then I'll do pretty well. Yeah, actually, I really appreciate the honesty because I feel like anybody, you know, if you're not totally excited and you are wary of what's going on right now, and you're trying to pretend like everything's, you know, just fine and hunky dory, it's, it's, 
it, it's tough. To, it, it's hard to feel like that message is, is authentic sometimes. And I still get excited and I feel like there are others who still are authentically excited. But um, I think it's important to just be honest when, you know, things are, are challenging and, and being upfront about that because um, trying to sugarcoat it doesn't always necessarily help anybody. So, I mean, there are realities to what we're dealing with right now and I think we're all in it together right now. So I, I appreciate, you know, that sentiment. There's people's life savings are at stake here. It's serious business. So it's not something to be um, overly enthusiastic about when the times aren't ripe for enthusiasm. Uh, this is, uh, there, there's, a, you know, there's serious consequences. Uh, I've, I've been in this business for a very long time and I've never lost a nickel of investor principal. I don't intend to start now. And I think that's one of the reasons why people invest with me. Uh, and you can't uh, make that claim if you're always saying everything's great because <laughs> there's times when it's just not, and that's okay. Uh, it's there's it can't always be perfect. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you so much again for coming on. Like I said so much incredible information and obviously if anybody wants to get to know you uh, they can you know pick up your book so if somebody wanted to get in touch with you what's the best way to do that they could go to the praxis capital website which is praxcap.com it's p-r-a-x-c-a-p.com you could follow me on instagram at investor brian burke uh, you could check out the forums on biggerpockets.com maybe you'll find me there answering questions or you could grab the book either at Amazon, bookstores, or direct from the publisher at biggerpockets.com forward slash syndication book, where you'll get uh, some free bonus content if you order it directly from the publisher. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you again. And hopefully can have you on again some point in the future and things will be turning around and we'll have a, a much better outlook on things at that point. You say the word, Keith, I'll be there. All right. Thanks, Brian. Thank you.